0: James Bond Japanese proverbs say Bird never make nest in bear tree
1: Just a slight stiffness coming on
0: Your cellos are studied various I'm just up here at Oxford Brushing up on a little Danish You know what I can do with my little finger
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole Series 2, episode number three. Thank you very much indeed for joining us in the cubbyhole. In the absence of Eon-produced content, it's a pleasure to bring you some fresh new Bond content, whether you're listening via an earpiece linked to a tiny device in a Faberge egg, a giant ghetto blaster, or just an ordinary mobile device. We hope you've been enjoying the show so far. Do consider giving us a review on your podcast app or website of choice. We're always grateful for your feedback. You can also support the show by joining us over on social media as well. Just type in Roger Moore's Cubbyhole on Facebook and Instagram and give us a follow there, as well as Twitter, where our handle is cubby. And while you're there, feel free to send us any Bond question you'd like us to discuss on the show. We'll try to include as many of your suggestions as possible into the Q branch, the questions branch segment at the end of each episode. Alternatively, if you prefer the relatively old-fashioned style of communication, you can drop us a line via email, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole at gmail.com. Now, in our previous episode, we heard from the chair of the British Stunt Register and stunt performer on many a Bond film, Jim Dowdle. We went through our 07 best chasers of the franchise and we examined Roger Moore's hidden gem, the man who haunted himself. But what's in store for this week's episode let's jump in with the guidance of our usual hosting team. Firstly, he's the John Cleese to my Ben Wishaw. It's Phil. What's new this week, Phil? Are are you still longing for E.ON to produce some films uh, about the superior adventures of 001?
1: I I still maintain that could be an excellent spin-off series. Thanks very much, Martin. I'm I'm very well, thank you. As ever, just a really, really quick run through um, some of our shout outs from our social media. So we had a lot of positivity to our top 007 villains. We had a lot of votes for um, Fran Sanchez and particularly Hugo Drax as well. So Gavin Clark got in touch to say, surely Drax has to go down as the best villain, an actual threat to humanity and menace personified with excellent dialogue. Uh, we also had a lot of people agreeing with us about Goldfinger as well, so Matt Nicholson mentioned my number one has to be Goldfinger, just a great character, and had the one line everybody remembers from a villain, uh, and also Sanchez was the most real-to-life villain, awesome show, keep up the great work, so thank you very much, Matt.
2: And secondly, he's the Bernard Lee to my Robert Brown, it's Adam, how are you, Adam?
3: I'm very good, thank you. I wouldn't say you're Robert Brown. I think you're definitely a Dame Judi Dench, if anyone, Martin. Uh, I'm very good. I've I've, uh, found out something this week, actually, that will interest you, Martin. We obviously have talked a little bit about the Bond spin-offs, that never were and that we'd like to see. We talked a bit about um, Sylvia Trench and Hawk of a Caddy go golfing a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but it turns out, like, and we've talked about with Die Another Day, Jinx Johnson was always going to hopefully have the sort of Silver Olympics Bond film, which never came to pass because no one liked either Die Another Day or indeed that character. But it turns out that earlier than that, based on Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, the producers were mooting two spin off films. One, quite naturally, was going to be the further adventures of Wei Lin. The other one, bizarrely, was going to be, and this is properly mooted by the Bond producers, a spin off starring Dr. Kaufman your favourite Tomorrow Never Dies one-scene baddie.
2: I would love to have seen that, The Adventures of Dr Kaufman. I mean, the character's so rich in texture, isn't he, in, in that one scene. You just know that he's got this backstory behind him, and what a shame we didn't see it.
3: You know what it would probably have been? It would have probably been a little bit. You know um, Winston Wolfe, Harvey Keitel's character in Pulp Fiction? He's like the cleaner who comes in, hey, I solved problems, give me coffee, lots of cream, lots of sugar. It'd have been something like that, wouldn't it? A very dapper, sort of sophisticated gent goes around in a tuxedo or a nice suit just helping criminals get out of bother.
2: Of course, he was not expert in whatever kind of torture it was, wasn't he? So it would have been quite a dark series, I think, if, uh, if they'd have gone down that
3: route.
1: I believe it was chakra torture. I don't know if that is a real form of torture, but my, my Bond knowledge suggests it's chakra torture. It's, it's quite kinky chakra,
3: isn't it? It's, it's very close to, what's that other one? Tantra.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure I'd have enjoyed the uh, the tantric sex of Dr. Kaufman. <laughs> Thank goodness that didn't happen.
3: Wait, I'm just a professional doing a job.
0: Me too.
2: Okay, so for our first segment, thankfully we're not looking at the misadventures of Dr. Kaufman. We are going to take a look at a scene in From Russia With Love. Let's take a listen to Alan Partridge's ideas for this one.
3: It's all very tense on the Orient Express! Red Grant's very kindly explaining the entire plot of the film to Bond! So it wasn't a Russian show at all. Spectre's been playing us off against each other. I don't mind talking. I get a kick out of watching the great James Bond realise what a bloody fool he's been. So it was you at the mosque? Uh-huh. and the other guy? Uh Uh-huh. Captain Nash? And at the Gypsy Camp? Still me, old man! Then Grant pulls out the nudie movie they took of Bond and Tanya and gives him a massive bitch slap round the face. The first bullet won't kill you, nor the second, not even the third. Not until you crawl over here and you kiss my foot. Bond asks for the most expensive fag of all time. Then his suitcase blows up a load of talcum powder at Grant, and then they go full WWE in the carriage. Boom! He's got him in a headlock. Bang! It's a massive choke slam. Crash! He's gone through the door. Wouldn't want to tidy all this up. Grant nearly chokes Bond on his watch wire, but Bond remembers the handy knife he somehow knew he'd need, and nearly takes Grant's head off with his own watch. Then calmly straightens his tie and grabs his money back. You won't be needing this, old man. The end.
2: So the train fight in From Russia with Love, with, of course, Connery's Bond and uh, Robert Shaw playing Donald Grant. This is a scene that I chose. Uh, So for me, I think this is one of the best scenes in the best film of the Bond franchise. Uh, I just really love it in the sense that it's it's kind of not just the fight itself in The Train. In the cabin, it's all of the build-up. It's kind of a culmination of what we know was coming. Uh, kind of, we know that Grant's been lurking in the shadows, following Bond on the train. Uh, we know he's assumed the identity of Captain Nash. Uh, we know he's taken out arguably the most lovable ally in Karen Bay. And we also know that Bond is kind of uneasy with his presence there. We know that he's suspicious of this character, but we don't quite know how it's going to resolve what kind of showdown we're going to get. Uh, So I think everything about the scene leading up to the fight is incredible. Claustrophobic environment as well. We've got no soundtrack, just the other sound of the train in the background. Uh, And then, of course, the fight comes and we get some excellent stump work, and uh, I think even when the gas canister explodes in Grant's face, it's not—it's kind of not an easy task for Bond to take him down. He kind of lives up to the credentials that we saw earlier when Cleb was hitting him with the uh, the knuckle duster. Uh, so I think uh, every element of this fight and everything leading up to it just makes it a really, really great scene.
1: Not only is it one of the greatest fight sequences in a Bond film, it's probably one of the greatest fight sequences. In cinema, you know, there's there's this real sense of claustrophobia. Obviously, you get the moment where um, Grant fires the gun and it, it extinguishes the light. So you basically got this really, really not strange, but it's quite a, quite a beautiful in a way, this sort of blue light in, in the background as, as the fight begins. And again, you've got that emotive payoff where it's, you know, we've just seen Karen Bay get murdered and, and Bond is hurting. He's really angry at this point. And you also get the sense that these are two not just characters, these are two men who are in the peak of physical fitness. Because, you know, obviously we know that Connery was a former boxer. And when it's not the stunt doubles, when they're doing the close-up shots, they are really hitting each other. They are, this is not, you know, this is verging on an actual fist fight.
3: It's really the first epic fist fight in a Bond series, isn't it? I mean, we've had Bond tussling with people, but nothing really like this. We really don't know that Bond can survive this guy. Uh, so the stakes are really sky high in it. Uh, And and just the way that um, the confrontation between them, the verbal confrontations filmed with Connery on his knees, the camera looking down on him, Shaw just very gradually as Grant reclining on the seat and the camera looking up at him, it really does get the power dynamics and the fact that Bond really is at a massive disadvantage physically here. It's also a vast improvement on the book this scene. There's no fistfight at all in the novel from Russia with Love. Uh, Instead, it is that Grant actually shoots Bond very precisely in the heart, but Bond has known to put a cigarette case in the way. So that stops the bullet, Bond fakes his death and then manages to surprise Grant and stab him and strangle him from there.
2: Yeah, that sounds like a real improvement from the book, I'd say. I'm not sure whether that would have been a bit of a corny action scene, wouldn't it? If uh, if the bullet stopped by a cigarette case.
3: Yeah, completely. And we've already done in this film the fake out of thinking that Bond is dead because, of course, the very opening sequence, which which, you know, mirrors and dovetails with this one because we think Bond's been strangled by Grant. It's the great John Ketteringham, of course. I love that you mentioned that the shooting out of the light film and that creating that sort of weird blue glow, it, it enforces that sense of chaos because you really can't tell who's who. Uh, throughout the scene. And of course, on a practical level, it, it allows them to blur the line between when it's stunt doubles and when it's actually Shaw and Connery doing it. But you really, you you do get completely lost in that scene and you can't tell which body's which.
2: I guess the, the lack of soundtrack also really emphasises the the sound effects that you get as well. So it, it feels more realistic because of those those punches seem to be real, don't they? And the particularly at the end, when he finally gets the knife into Red Grant's arm, the scream that they use is quite piercing, isn't it? It's not—it's uh, not the Wilhelm scream. It does sound like a real, like he's really been sliced by that dagger.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that train noise you mentioned, Phil, it's so good how they use that because it's so calm throughout the dialogue exchange. It's just that gentle lull, that rhythm in the background, almost a countdown clock to death, isn't it? And then the way that it explodes once the window's out. There's so much going on in Connery's performance in this scene, isn't there? I mean, he's got that very, very calm exterior. He never raises his voice at all throughout the scene, even with all the bad anger and and that sort of panic, I guess, that he's going through. But the internalization of the character is amazing in this scene he's simultaneously kind of appalled at the sheer level of psychopathy that he's been confronted with just the diabolical nature and the seediness of Spectre's plan he's working it all out as he goes and he's still managing to keep one step ahead by antagonizing Grant you know Shaw has that very sort of cold delivery he gets the cruelty of the character but Connery still has those moments like with Dr No when he needles him he knows that if he riles him enough he can throw him off his game and he can undermine his professionalism and maybe get something of an upper hand.
1: One of the ways I love as well is the fact that obviously Red Grant um, as Robert Shaw playing him basically says that he's going to make it slow for Bond you know he could easily shoot him while he's got him on his knees but it's kind of it gives Bond the slight out in the fact that Grant wants to make it hard for me wants to make it you know a, a brutal and, and really slow and agonizing death
3: yeah I love the physicality of the performance from both of them as well just things like you know the subtlety of the business from Grant uh, kind of shows his professionalism in a way the fact he's just very carefully putting the silencer on the gun while it's on his knee much earlier on in their conversation and then kind of putting the gloves on when they're talking about the cigarette so you know and Bond knows this is his last chance but also Connery the fact that he's sort of Fain's physical desperation when he's going between those suitcases, getting the gold sovereigns, which obviously enhances Grant's suspicion and leads to his downfall. And the sign-off from Connery is amazing. Just the fact that he just straightens that tie, you know, g- grabs the money back from Grant's body because he's not going anywhere without his 50-gold chauvelins, Connery being Connery. Um, you know, the, the fact that his hand's a bit bloody and his shirt's a bit scuffed is kind of the only indication anything's happened at the end of it.
2: Yeah, that train is surely going through lots of different countries, lots of text domiciles. Connery probably wasn't very happy. I, I'm also, when I watched this one as a child... I was always wondering what what the people next to them were thinking, like uh, the train conductor never comes in and, and tells them to quieten it down. <laughs> I guess it makes sense that we uh, we don't hear from the other passengers.
3: Well, also on that note, how good is the drug that Grant's given to Tanya that she manages to sleep through the entire thing? Not just the noise of it, but I'm pretty sure one of them absolutely crashes down on top of her at some point during that fight. I think that's the great thing about the choreography, isn't it, though, on, on, a, on a more serious note, the fact that it's it's not dance-like in any way. Sometimes a fight in a film can feel like a dance. It can feel quite graceful, you know, sort of like how a martial arts fight would be. This, as you both said before, it really isn't. It's just a proper scrap. It's a real punch-out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just completely hectic, and it's just chaos. But it, that's what adds to the, the whole scene, and it makes it so good.
3: You won't be needing this old man
2: so it's on to our main feature for today's episode for yori is only the interview segment who did we invite into the cubbyhole this week adam
3: Thank you very much. Into the cubby hole this week, we have John Grover. Now, John is a film editor who worked on multiple Bond films. He was uh, an assistant and assembly editor on The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. And then when John Glenn took the director's chair, uh, John Grover edited four of his five Bond films, For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy and both Dalton films, The Living Daylights and Licence to Kill. Uh, And so this this interview was very kindly set up with the help of friend of the show, Nicholas Broadstock, and he does join us for this interview. So you'll also hear a little bit from our old friend Nick as well. So without any further ado, let's head over to John.
2: Had you watched the Bond films before you started working on them?
0: They they were always, you know, films. I used to go when, or before I was married, used to go to the cinema a lot. Once I started in the film industry, I started at MGM. I had to do two years as a numbering boy, really down the bottom. And to get a union ticket because you couldn't work in the film industry unless you had a ticket. And that's how I got in. And then it was always interesting. And, you know, I used to go to as many films as we could go to. And the Bond films were all action films. And I don't know, they were interesting, well made, made a lot of money. So that's my start. And then when I I didn't work on those sort of films because I... I wasn't freelance. I was MGM, so I started on lots of, lots of pictures. I'm mean, trying to think. The first picture I ever did was in black and white. Everybody very interested in my life on 2001, which when I was working on it, to me that was the most boring picture because it was so long, and as each shot was it started in the left hand side and came out the way and go right out of the right hand side. No cuts or anything. But my claim to fame on, on 2001 is that I did all the breathing in space so, with a real helmet.
3: Your first yeah. two, The Spy Who Loved Me and, and Moonraker, I know you weren't the main editor. You were, I think, an assembly editor, an assistant yeah. editor.
0: Well, I mean, when Spy Who Loved Me, the first one I went on, I had a, I'd been working with John. I, had a, had, I, was, I wasn't working at MGM then. I was freelance. And I'd done something for John sorting something out and he liked what I did or the way that I took it over and and handled it so he asked me to be first assistant on Smile Lummy. well the I came on early because they they were in uh, Canada or wherever it was wherever they shot the ski sequence and we had the rushes coming in and that and I had to report to him they were okay and I didn't put it together but I mean We had this wonderful shot, which we had three cameras on everything, and only one person got it in the final one. That was Alan Hume. and that's how I got in with John. And you know, I I did my job. I'd I'd had a very good training as assistant because I'd worked with on such big pictures, and and didn't worry me that you got a thousand takes or something like that because it was all organised. It was on film though, not 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 digital, and we had you know, thousands of cans all marked up. And that was my job to, I was responsible for that with with other crew, we had youngsters on it as well. Moonraker was all location. We were in Paris because they couldn't pay the tax or wouldn't pay the tax. So Roger and Cubby said, we'll make the film in Paris, which is a wonderful time and fantastic. A, a, A very, once again, a very difficult film because of space. Space, slow, underwater, slow bond so in the end we would skip framing we couldn't do like digitally do now uh, it was all done optically so if you look at some of the stuff if you look at it the quality of it's not nearly as good as it could have been now but they 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 were fun pictures the uh, lewis gilbert didn't like working at the weekend so in paris i mean we john and i had a flat between us in 17th so long it was a beautiful place which had which had two bedrooms and a kitchen and this that and the other and we used to go skiing at the weekends. <laughs> but either that, if We either that, we'd go home we had what I, I was earning four hundred pounds a week and I had four hundred pounds in expenses which was in in nineteen whenever it was it was quite a lot of money.
2: You mentioned earlier about your time with John Glenn who of course directed many of the films that where you were the yeah. chief editor. Um, what was that relationship like? What, uh, what kind of dynamic did you have?
0: We knew each other very well because we used to live fairly near each other and, and we'd eat together and, and having been such a long time on the pictures. Uh, early on, it was a lot of fun and I he, he knew my way of working because I would often, when he was the editor, <clears throat> put a sequence together and then he'd go, he'd just say, what else you got? That's his. What else you got? When on a bond film, you you have so many ways you could start a sequence. You you know, wide shot or close shot or pull back or moving, or you know, establishing shots somehow. So you, you once you've made the decision how you're going to go, that tells the story of how you create the whole scene. So you know, I presented to him, and he said. Okay, let's try starting such and such, which meant you had to redo it all again. You know, it's storytelling, which you learn, it's very difficult to tell how you edit or what editing is. Editing is storytelling. It's a big jigsaw puzzle. No, it isn't a jigsaw puzzle because jigsaw puzzle can only go one way.
3: Generally speaking, in terms of editing a Bond film, like how long does that process take? What are the sort of main challenges that you face?
0: When, when we start on a Bond film, we, the, the first thing we're told is the day we have to deliver. So it's a deadline. So not, it, it's not as if you've got unlimited time. You have, you have time, but you have a delivery date, which it's got to be dubbed and music and everything like that. So you've got to prepare stuff. So you go in on early. And as we go through, I take a sound editor on fairly early in the stage. And we do temp music because we've got that from, depending who the composer is going to be, we normally put John Barris on it. So we had, you 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 started to put the picture together. Each scene is put together and then it we give a temp dub and then show it to John, change it. And then the picture is built up. You never start from the beginning. It's all bits and pieces. And then, then, then gradually, as the thing builds up, you've got to, think in those days it was got to be in 2000 foot reels because that's the maximum they could print so that came down to sequences how long they would go and storytelling it's for ages until we ran the whole film complete and then you realize that some scenes didn't work very well or needed to be cut in half or something or Normally on a Bonds you didn't change scenes round too much, not not from sequence to sequence, because they're all going in order. And there's a lot of work done on the script beforehand and it's storyboarded as well. So it's, it's easier than doing a documentary. The most difficult thing was the titles, because Maurice Binder would come on, on the pictures I was on. He would, he would be on very early and he'd be pulling out favourite pieces to make his titles or certain things, you know, to, to do silhouette-style stuff from the film. And then gradually he'd change it completely and then he'd be shooting. Suddenly he'd be given two days shooting and he'd shoot miles and miles of nude women trying to make it sort of sexual and then of course we got trouble with a censor there's another thing censor problems (laughs) because we had we had to deliver a picture for children to see or for youngsters to see that was Cubby's he didn't want to I mean I did violent Bond films in which we had serious trouble with the censor
3: we were going to ask you a bit more actually about whether you had any censorship issues and making the film presumably Licence to Kill would have been the worst one
0: they'd fire you know the end of with that, was serious trouble with the sensor because fire is where it was then. I don't think they worry about it now. And it was a very dangerous stunt and very carefully done. But he didn't like the sensor who John Trevelyan was. He didn't like it, so we would take it away and take a couple of frames off here and then run it for him again. And then just to try and con him, then to accept it because. At one time on that, he refused to give it a 12 certificate and said it's got to be 15. And Cubby said, "Okay, fine. I'm not going to take a sense certificate. I'll do it without a sense certificate, which he didn't do because he couldn't. But he was really cross with them because they'd had Die Hard come out, which was extraordinarily violent. And somehow they got away with it.
2: I think we've covered John Trevelyan before, haven't we, on the podcast? He inspire. His name is taken for one of the Bond villains in in Goldeneye.
3: What what kind of relationships did you form with some of the the chief actors you'd have met who uh, who'd have been in the Bond films? Either you know Roger Moore or Timothy Dalton or, or any of the sort of casts around them.
0: Well, I got on, I got on well with Tim with with uh, with Roger because he was much more friendly. I mean, Roger, if there was a problem anywhere on the set, you know, uncomfortable, Roger would joke about it or go and buy a ton of sweets or something like that. Tim Dalton was a really miserable I And mean, we had a lot of trouble with Tim about smoking. He was insisting on smoking. So the censor the, the, the said, well, we've got to stop this. So I'd try and you'd, you'd, you'd see Tim open a thing, get a cigarette out, and then you might see him put it in his mouth, but you never see him light it. And then he complained to me. He said, well, you never light the cigarette. or or, or I cut cut away so you can't see him doing it. And so we had arguments about I didn't I didn't get on with Tim as well. I mean I I worked with him of course we did but and looping and that but but not um, not like Roger. Roger was a lot more fun. Marion Darbo, yeah she 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 she, sorry the a little blonde girl yes she she would love it. Carrie Lowell she was lovely, absolutely super to work with such fun. And and when we went to Mexico, we had a weekend off. We all went down to the coast. Nobody in the cutting rooms now would ever get a chance to go out with the actresses on, on the arts. It's such a shame because that's where things are made. I mean, you, you might get a bit biased it when well, I would be close up of her there like her. <laughs> you sort of fall in love with her. We've
3: heard Roger Moore was a bit of a practical joker on set. Did you ever see that in action or, or were you ever on the okay. receiving end of any of it? Okay.
0: And only only once when we set up when I was called because who was it? There was a bed scene and he had this enormous dildo. And, um, and 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 he was he was all cropped up, you know, injured this And she comes in, oh Roger was or, 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 James, James, is and the other. And he says, and then he just draws this great truncheon out from the bed, which, which was hilarious. Roger was so funny.
1: And did you ever have to make any sort of difficult decisions when you were editing the Bond films? Were there any times when the director said he really wanted to sort of keep a scene in or, or did you have to make decisions that you had to cut scenes that were, that were kind of integral to the film?
0: Uh, well, I mean, the director is in charge and certainly with, with John as an editor, I mean, he, he would know what could be done. Uh, with other directors, I mean, you, you fight for them you know, you're making a film together and the director, is his name on it, then nobody cares what the editor is. So you would always end up doing, well, today, unfortunately, I think you end up doing what the producer wants, which is sometimes not a good idea.
3: Well, on that, obvious, obviously, Albert R. Broccoli was, was still producing when you were working on the films. What kind of producer was he? Did you work very closely with him? Did you know him particularly well? How did he? How did he sort of you know interact the with you? The, in the greatest
0: area? thing I could say, the greatest thing I could say about Covey is that he made a decision, and he kept to it. If he if, if he he wouldn't mind throwing away a scene that cost a million dollars if it didn't work. And that takes a lot of <laughs> a lot of. Um, you know, guts to do that. He, he, he decision-maker. And, and also, you know, the, when, when a picture was cut, he would make a decision. He wouldn't fiddle around at the end saying, well, somebody, a friend of mine saw this and he's not in it because he always used, if you notice, if you know the Bonds well, you're always seeing crowd scenes certain people or well, are financiers that have all backed him when he was younger. And he always puts them in, these old people on the ski slope, a ski jump. There's an old man up there, he's about 75, I say, old man. And he'd no way that he do a ski jump, but he's in there ready to ski. Have <laughs> a look at that. I was wondering about when you were working on Octopussy, was there extra pressure because the, uh, the other Bond film, Never Say Never Again, that was coming out? Uh, no, because we were we were doing the proper bond, and they were doing. We had a spy on that picture. One of our assistants, who Bill Barringer, who was who used to work with Colin Miller on the bonds that I did, he was one of my sound editors and assistants. He got a job on there, so he was informing us of what was happening there. Not stealing the picture, but knowing that, you know, it was, it, it, it was all politics to do with his director. Um, well, producer, director. He, I mean, there was room for the both pictures. It wasn't that good, that one. Octopussy was a better film.
3: I just wanted to ask actually about Fioras Only because it's a real favourite of mine, that film. And it's a much more meditative, I feel, and kind of melancholy film in tone than, than the two that went before it. Was that something you were quite conscious of creating in the editing or, or was it just kind of very similar in terms of your job?
0: Well, I, I, I suppose because of my first I was trying to make it as best as possible. I mean, it was, you know... The most the things that I felt from when I first saw the rushes <clears throat> always, always people only see the picture once normally. They don't dissect every single look. So it's a matter of, you know, you're trying to tell a story. Are you believing it's happening? Is, does it feel comfortable? I'm very conscious of left to rights and crossing the line and things like that. Well, that's where you have a director who, who was an editor, he doesn't normally do that.
3: Were you out sort of in, in Yeah, well, we, are, we, we went
0: out there for some while we stayed in a hotel on the beach I can tell you a story about Alan Hume cameraman on our one day off a week we'd only have one day off a week it was a Sunday we were on this great big hotel on the beach he went uh, windsurfing never in his life had he been on a windsurf before he got on he went out to sea they had to go and rescue him because he's going to Albania he couldn't, he couldn't turn around. There's a scene we really admire in Free Rise Only*, where uh, in the climax, Roger Moore Bond is climbing up and there's a henchman kind of knocking him down. And I don't think there's any music. It's very atmospheric. Um, yeah, well, we had problems on that because we had to avoid certain shots because the priests and the monks on the top of the hill kept hanging sheets out. So that it all white, Every got white flares coming up. And it, it, it's not digital. Like today, you just take them out digitally. But in those days, it would have meant duping the shots and that. So it was a, a kind of tr- traditional John story with a pigeon jumping out or whatever it was.
3: Was there a sort of change in approach from editing the Roger Moore films that you did to the Timothy Dalton ones? Because obviously they are very different. They feel very different.
0: Yeah, well, the script was written for Roger. So it had funny lines in it, which Tim can't do. He's he's not very he's he's a great action man. He's much more athletic. Roger couldn't run at all. <clears throat> he could waddle. He, he certainly couldn't ski. <laughs> and and Tim, Tim, Tim was very athletic in that way, much better, sir. So. Did I prefer I preferred Roger to Tim. I did both of Tim's pictures. And we were making violent films then, which was the trend.
3: Did you did you think they were perhaps too violent? Did you, having worked on The Rogers, feel like you were sort of drifting away from what you really enjoyed from from Bomb films?
0: Well, I mean, when he went into that mincer things like that, I mean that was absolutely when you saw those rushes, God say when they were chucking meat in, you know, big chunks of meat in it was all never used it because you couldn't, it was so violent. It's very easy to make violent films. You can show violence in somebody's reaction, which is much better.
3: He's looking at all of the sequences you put together for the bonds, Is there any that stands out as being a particular favourite?
0: Well, the, the end of Octopussy, when, when the baddie is chased in the train and that. John had done a lot of coverage. Arthur Worcester, the second unit, had done a lot of coverage and this and a lot of close-up. And the most thing is that I got every single cut in. And when you think, that that was a challenge to have so many pieces of film, to, to make it so it's, it's all happening real and never showed the same shot twice. John, John was a great one for that. He shoots so many sequences and so many scenes and he didn't want to use the same angle twice unless it was a dialogue scene, certainly not on action
3: did you did you prefer cutting the dialogue scenes to the action scenes or, or did you enjoy the complexity of, of putting those action sequences together uh,
0: sometimes action scenes were daunting especially if you've got two unit shooting or three unit shooting I mean all the, the the big stuff in Mexico was was a lot of coverage there with the trucks and that and that was that was uh, quite difficult to make it Real. I mean, it's completely impossible when you think what they're doing. But to try and someone gets a missile out. We didn't have digital effects then. This was all real. They're all on wires. You had to avoid the wires. I don't know. That that was clever. Do I prefer those? Dialogue scenes. You're going for emotion and eyes and lips and mouths, and or whatever. Hands are important.
3: We wanted to ask as well, just of the Bonds that you worked on and, and possibly the series as a whole, what, what are your personal favourites? Which are the ones that you hold the dearest?
0: Well, I still prefer Spy Who Loved Me because that had the most exotic locations in and it was the best of the Bonds that I worked on. I mean, I, of course I enjoyed the ones I worked on myself and, and for, for Your Eyes Only was the best one probably there. Yeah? But no, Spy Who Loved Me was a great movie.
3: We always get the impression talking to people who worked on the Bonds that it it was very much the sense of a family and that there was a lot of camaraderie. Was was that your experience of it as
0: well? Yeah, absolutely. It all stemmed from Cubby. Cubby and to a somewhat with Michael, Michael and Barbara. Yes, I think that was absolutely true. I mean, I still hear from Barbara occasionally. We get the Christmas card from Michael. So it it is a family.
2: So that was John Grover editor, supervising editor for many Bond films. Well, uh, what a sweet man he was. He he kept telling us that his memory was failing, but he answered all of our questions in, in great detail. And he just seemed like a lovely... Lovely guy, didn't he? Uh,
3: There's so much amazing films that he's worked on that we just couldn't feature in the interview. I mean, Dr Zhivago, he had a bit more to say on 2001. Uh, Labyrinth, the great Jim Henson film, he had amazing stories working on that with Henson and all the puppeteers and Jennifer Connelly and David Bowie. Uh, He also told us a little bit about one of his later films called Funky Monkey about a chimp who learns to play American football. I
2: feel like Funky Monkey could replace Taffin as our new favourite film outside of the Bond series.
3: Yeah, maybe we just watch Funky Monkey in a, a future episode of The Film Club.
1: I, th- I think we could do that as a special edition, I think.
3: What, a whole episode on Funky Monkey?
2: Well, John said he didn't understand the rules of American football, so I guess it would be funny if no one on the production understood American football and they did it anyway. I mean, let's face it, it's never going to beat Sean Bean in When Saturday Comes, some good old British football.
3: The greatest of all sports films, When Saturday Comes. Not on pitching, me beloved blades.
1: <laughs> Holy
0: smoke! There's a, a
2: monkey on the field! <laughs> so, next up, we have the 007 Best, and this week we're going to examine our 007 Best Leading Ladies throughout the Bond franchise.
1: Number seven. So in seventh place, we have Pussy Galore, of course, from Goldfinger. Um, Obviously one of the most memorable performances as well from Honor Blackman. Um, And yeah, just a really great character um, from the actual series.
3: Yeah, she, she's kind of the first Bond woman with real agency in the storyline, isn't she, Pussy Galore? Like, she, you know, the fact that she's not just a bystander who's been caught up in this. She's an active part of the criminal plot. Uh, and of course, Anna Blackman lobbied for her judo skills, which were used in the Avengers TV series to be used in this film as well. It's also the first age-appropriate love interest for Bond. Anna Blackman was five years older than Sean Connery, and so it's a real riposte to the first two films, and I guess earlier in, in Goldfinger as well, when it's always Bond and someone who's a fair bit younger than him this time it's someone older than him who isn't as intimidated by him who can actually hold her own against him and as she says you can turn off a charm i'm immune
2: yeah i mean i think everyone's always going to remember this character aren't they just for, for the name alone yeah she's a, a character with agency as you say adam and, and someone who eventually turns to bon side although the means in which she does that of course are rather uncomfortable for for modern viewers but still i think she's a. Uh, an interesting character a powerful character and uh certainly central to uh to one of the best Bond films
1: yeah she's also really resourceful as well and it's just the fact that you know she she's not really swayed by anyone else she she's very much independent of anybody else's thinking so she's she's very much um you know determined in her own convictions
3: yeah it, it is true what you say about that Bond conversion Martin and it's it's all the more disappointing because this is a very powerful character in her own right in in every other way that um character is portrayed i mean certainly in the costuming as well it's incredibly masculine she's almost power dressing in that sharp tight suit with the shoulder pads which are kind of a little bit pointed as well she's also crucially i think the first major bomb woman not to be dubbed Uh, and so it really harnesses that sort of very sexy cat-like purr of honor blackman's voice and so it's not just a physical allure that the character has it's very much vocal as well number six
2: and in at number six, we have Katiana Romanova from, from Russia with Love. So this one, we mentioned Pussy Galore, of course, central to some of the plot points in Goldfinger, and Katiana also central in another one of the, the best Bond films, I think it's quite interesting, the dynamic we get in this film. Of course, in later Bond films, uh, we do get Bond fraternising with the enemy. And in this sense, he is also doing something similar. But Tatiana, of course, is loyal to Mother Russia, and she's being played by Kleb. For me, I think it's an interesting dynamic that we get in this film that Tatiana is uh, just as loyal to her country as Bond is to his.
1: Yeah, and, it, and it's a brilliant performance by Daniela Bianchi as well. You know, this this sense that Tatiana Romanova is kind of, she's very much compromised as is Bond in, in the scenario and the fact that they're both having to to work together and, and they're both of the opinion that they're being set up but they're not sure who by. And, and, you know, and Daniela Bianchi plays that brilliantly. I think she was one of the, still one of the youngest um, actors to play a leading lady in a in a Bond film. So for that so the maturity that she brings to that performance is is really brilliantly done as well.
3: You're absolutely right. She is a very committed agent. When she first meets Bond, she plays the temptress role to the absolute T. Uh, you know, I mean, that bedroom seduction scene is still, I think, a series standard. You know, the the fact you glimpse her nude through the sort of gauze curtain, the dialogue in that scene is still used as the screen test to test um, the current Bond against the actresses who might be playing opposite him in the next film. But Bond almost brings on that crisis of faith in her, which she then really struggles with. And it's not just that she's attracted to Bond in real life, as opposed to just as a ruse for Russia. Um, He almost reveals the glamour and the luxury of a sort of non-Russian life, doesn't he? The fact that... But they're on the Orient Express and he gives her these amazing clothes and they can talk about going out in Piccadilly Circus, uh, you know, and, and him treating her with genuine affection before Kerim's killed and he starts really getting incredibly violent with her.
0: Number five.
3: And in at number five, it's Octopussy. Um, I'm a very big fan of Octopussy. Maud Adams, I think, was just hands down the best performer of Bond women full stop, considering this and uh, Anders in The Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, she's exotic and she's attractive and really alluring, but there's a huge dignity and authority to the performance as well. And she brings a real inner life to her characters. There's real complexity going on beneath the surface. And you sense that there's a real backstory. Obviously, it's, it's you know, it's overt in Octopus as she talks about it in relation to Bond. But you get the sense of a fully rounded character who has lived a life up until that point, way before Bond comes into the story or rather until he comes into Bond's story
2: yeah I love the way that she's introduced in the film as well almost similar to the uh in the shadows Blofeld uh, we get her kind of hiding behind the octopus tank in her meetings with Kamal Khan before we actually see who she is uh, so it's kind of the film is kind of tempting us to think that she's a Blofeld character uh, and of course she is technically a, a bad guy or a bad woman in this case um but certainly not as bad as uh as the crazy all lovers we discover in the film,
1: you know Roger Moore was kind of into the autumn of his years in terms of um, you know the Bond roles, and obviously it as we saw in Your Eyes only it didn't necessarily work as well having you know younger actors alongside an older Bond. But this it works perfectly because obviously Maude Adams is is a bit more of a mature role, and she's obviously she's she's playing the role of you know of, of somebody who is kind of a an international although an international criminal is is still very much you know sort of world-wise and and has been you know has has experienced so much in her time and obviously knows what bond is about as well uh she's very much a riff
3: octopusy on pussy galore both the pussy galore of the film and of the book again like you say martin we are denied the chance to see her and get the physical allure of the character before we've heard her. Uh, And so that allure comes from the soft and seductive and mysterious nature of her voice. But also just in terms of the pussy galore of the book, she's also the leader of this all female criminal gang. And so they have very much taken, you know, that that character from a previous novel and they have really sort of now a few years on, 20 years on pretty much gone the full hog with this, you know, female character being fully a part of the criminal conspiracy. I mean, you know, she is technically in charge of Kamal Khan until he betrays her.
1: Good
2: evening. I wondered when you might arrive.
0: So you are the mysterious octopus.
2: And you are James Bond, 007 licensed to kill. Am I to be
1: your target for tonight? So moving on to number four, we have Kara Milovi from The Living Daylights, of course played brilliantly by Mariam D'Arbo. And it's it's a great performance throughout. what do you guys think? Obviously, do you agree? Obviously, we agree. Phil. It's our list as well, isn't it? It's our combined list. <laughs> uh, yeah, Cara
2: Maliffi, a great character for me. Nice development. Seems like a, a fairly normal, ordinary person who's forced into uh, these incredible situations. Uh, but yeah, I think for me, I think she's a, a wonderful character and also an actor who was interested in Bond as well herself. And I think that really comes through in her performance. And I think she's even written uh, a book about leading Bond women as well. So want to check that one out
3: uh i'd go further than that martin i'd say she is probably the most ordinary bond woman uh just in terms of the look of her i mean she's incredibly attractive but she's not You know, an uber attractive sort of glamorous Amazon from somewhere in the world, but also just the fact that her background is very ordinary. I mean, she's literally someone who just picked the wrong boyfriend. And then suddenly that has led to her entire life being trashed. I mean, literally, her flat is torn to shreds. She's whisked out of everything she knows and pretty much straight away into an Aston Martin chase. And Darbo's brilliant at conveying the shock and the fear that that character goes through. But also the excitement, actually, once she sort of realises that Bond is someone who isn't going to hurt her, who is going to protect her. She starts allowing herself to become more and more into what's going on. Uh, And and there's a really lovely shift in that character, which, of course, also is a great foil for Timothy Dalton and she really brings out that more tender human vulnerable side of him as Bond.
1: Yeah. And there are great moments of interplay between Dalton and Darbo in this film as well. You know, it's, it's great how they, they develop both the characters and Milovi kind of, she shows a lot of her vulnerability as well, in the sense that she's not really sure at points whether to trust Bond or not, but then he kind of, he shows that he is, you know, uh, obviously on the right side and, and the fact that, She should trust him after all.
3: I think also uh, the cello becomes a key symbol for that character, not just in terms of her expertise, the fact that outside of the spy game, she is someone who is brilliant and talented in her own right, but also the fact that Ian Fleming's sister was a cellist. I mean, that's why he writes the character as that way in the short story. And also the fact that she's quite a slight character and yet has complete mastery of this sort of quite large, bulky, difficult instrument. It almost suggests, I might be reading too much into this, that she can handle the demands of the adventure which is ahead of her. The fact that she can master this cello means that she can master anything else as well including bond
1: well i also enjoy the fact that uh, seemingly they can also adapt themselves to be able to use a cello case to, to slide down an austrian mountain
2: yeah they'd have been buggered if she played the violin number three and in at number three is Anya amasova agent triple x from the spy who loved me so this one, I think, a really good performance by Barbara Beck, who at the time was relatively inexperienced in filmmaking. Uh, so I think she does a really good job in this film, and uh, and essentially it's a, it's a, an interesting role again, isn't it, of a female character on the opposite side of uh, this time of the the Iron Curtain, and, and she's forced into working with Bond. Uh, but again, similar to some of the other characters we've mentioned, it's a really interesting start. I feel like we get introduced to the uh, to her boyfriend, who we all. Kind of tricked into thinking is the, the actual triple x but it ends up being her uh, a shame about the end i think being tied up by stromberg uh, she's just kind of separated from the action isn't she that was a bit disappointing but uh, overall really quite impressive
3: yeah, you're right. You do almost wish that her and Bond had just teamed up to defeat Stromberg in the end. And also that she'd had some kind of moment where she bests Jaws. I mean, Jaws is somehow always able to overpower her and she's never able to think her way out of it. But yeah, as Russia's finest, she's the first true equal to Bond. And so the relationship, the spark between her and Roger Moore, apparently they, they weren't favourite co-stars of each other, but you can't tell. I mean, the, the dialogue is great between them. They get a real sort of battle of the sexist screwball comedy feel going on. It's almost like watching Cary Grant and Rosalind From you know a sort of Howard Hawkes
1: film. And there's there's also great little moments where obviously we get these sort of great Roger Moore quips, obviously where they're in the pyramids and um Andrew is trying to start the van and and trying to drive it out of the the way of Jaws and obviously Roger Moore just responds with, maybe try and reverse And, and just things like that. Just these great little moments of interplay that are just really, really entertaining.
3: Yeah, and I love that she's constantly one step ahead of Bond as well, isn't she? Like when he goes to see Fekesh at the Pyramid, she's already there, sat next to him. Like she, she's miles ahead of where Bond is in that investigation. And again, when they visit Atlantis, she's the one who's saying, you should look at this model of this tanker because there's something weird about the hull. She's already onto the fact that this might be the thing he's using to swallow submarines. Uh, and I also love that she's basically resistant to Bond's charm throughout the entire film until the very, very end. And it starts with her being a bit Distrustful of him and almost embarrassed by him being this sort of you know slightly bungling kind of older avuncular figure whereas she's much younger and hipper as a spy and of course that turns to a sense of anger and, and wanting revenge on him for having killed her lover in the opening sequence so it's great that they withhold their romance until their very very end apart from a dalliance on the train after on the adrenaline high of having beaten jaws
2: yeah they deserved a little celebration for that number two
3: Okay, and in at number two, just missing out on the top spot, it's Vesper Lind as played by Eva Green in Casino Royale. Uh, I mean, this character is just phenomenal from the word go, isn't she? You think about that first meeting between her and Bond on the train. She feels aloof and unattainable and she gets across the strength and the power of that character, much like other power-dressing Bond women. She's a woman in a man's world and she's an absolute equal of every man in it. And so we sense from the start she is an absolute match for Bond. Certainly Bond is this much greener, more inexperienced agent.
1: It feels so much like she's almost like a force of nature in Bond. Universe, you know, she kind of turns his world upside down, almost. You know, it's you really get that sense of chemistry between the two characters, and this sense of betrayal as well. Obviously, at the end of the film, where Bond realizes that, you know, he's effectively been double-crossed by it. So it's it's just a great way that that all builds together, and and the way that Eva Green portrays that, you know, she's very much, you know, she's not impressed by any of Bond's kind of boyish charm or any of his arrogance and, and things like that. She very much thinks he's you know, we're almost a liability You know, the scene in Montenegro where he basically reveals that he's bombed to the receptionist and she just sort of throws the pen down in disgust because he's he's potentially compromised the mission before it's even started.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree with that, Phil. Very intriguing character. And I love that both characters kind of want to figure out, uh, figure each other out, don't they? Almost like they want to psychoanalyze each other, although luckily without Madonna in the background saying Sigmund Freud Um, but yeah I I go along with you it's a really really interesting and the the disposable pleasures as well that line about Vesper kind of attacking Bond for uh, for treating women badly in the past Um, I think there's just an extra edge to the relationship isn't there
3: yeah, her dialogue is full of wit throughout and she's allowed to get one up on Bond. In fact, she kind of outmatches him in a couple of senses, you know, that sizing up scene on the train. She's the one who makes the orphan connection, who manages to out him as one. But also, you know, lines about there are dinner jackets and there are dinner jackets. This is the latter. She's a bit more sophisticated than him at this point, And she kind of lords that over him. He's normally the snob in those relationships is Bond. And then he's intrigued by that as well. He loves that he's finally met his match and that there's a foil who can beat him at his own game.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the lines that I love as well is when they're first arriving in Montenegro and um, and Bond basically says, don't worry, you're not my type. And Eva Green basically says, what? Intelligent. It says, no, single.
3: Yeah, Eva Green deserves real credit for this because that character is performing on multiple levels pretty much throughout the whole film. The fact that the whole time she is a traitor and so is trying to hide that from Bond and indeed from the audience, but also the fact that she's meant to perform at the table as well. She's meant to make this big entrance to the room. She's in this big ball gown and it contrasts to the suit she's in earlier on. So it's it's not a natural costume change for her. And so just as he is performing at the table, she is performing, and yet it's a performance on top of a performance. So it's brilliant, the complexity of what Eva Green's allowed to do in the film.
1: Number one. And so to our number one, and you may have already guessed what it's going to be, but there was nobody else really that we could have chosen. Um, we went for Tracy DiVincenzo, who would become Tracy Bond, of course, from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, played by the late great Diana Rigg.
2: Yeah, I think it's no coincidence that our top two leading ladies are, are two of the leading ladies who are incredible actors and, uh, and characters that really match Bond. The emotion that we get at the end and, and the sense that this character has really changed the, we've got the traditional idea of what Bond should be. And, uh, and this character manages to change him so much that he, he gets married at the end. And of course the tragedy that comes afterwards. So uh, yeah, I think uh, definitely deserving of top spot.
3: Yeah, the, the emotional arc of this character is incredible. Um, I mean, she's an incredibly modern heroine when you look at it. She's certainly in the earlier passage of the film, she's allowed to be wayward and flawed. She starts the film suicidal. She's literally walking into the waves and, of course, is very self-destructive uh, in the later scenes at the casino when she's gambling with money she doesn't have and all the rest of it. Yet by the end, when we see her crying at her wedding day, it's it's not just tears of happiness that she's marrying James Bond. It, it's kind of a, a moment of self-fulfillment, isn't it? You sense she's found the love and support that she's always denied herself in her own past and the traumas that she's gone through and she's also transitioned when you think about it to the daughter of a villain mark on draco is a criminal to the wife of a hero and that just that that journey is kind of symbolic of where the character has gone through in the film and and it's just such a brilliant tender arc
2: yeah that family connection is really interesting isn't it and that's I think that's how you manage to connect. If you want to connect the villain side with the Bond character, uh, that's how it should be done uh, rather than what we get in, in more recent films.
1: It's telling because it feels like he is ready to settle down almost. It feels like obviously we've seen Bond in terms of the narrative. He's moved on from the sort of heavy drinking, heavy smoking, playboy almost of the 60s.
3: Every tiny scene with this character illustrates something really powerful and important. Think about that moment after um, the robbing of Gumball, which we were talking about last week, when she's in the taxi with Draco and she just has that throwaway line, oh, daddy, what could be more fun than being in love? And he just says, Mr. Bond is in love with you. And she just sort of pauses and says, that may come too. There's so much loaded in that line. The fact that she knows that she loves Bond, but he and indeed we as the audience don't quite know yet if he loves her. And so the emotional stakes of the character and what she's going through are set so sky high in that moment. It really gets you on side with her. It's it's a beautiful little exchange between them. A note as well on her resourcefulness and the moment when she's seducing Blofeld, uh, you know, before she sort of eggs him on to distract him from the attack, you know, lines like, I'm already a countess. I don't need to marry you. This is real fearlessness, isn't it? I mean, this is Blofeld. You know, you, you rebuff him enough times, he's going to feed you to the sharks, isn't he?
1: Yeah, Tracy was definitely brave. We, we can't put that, anything against her for that. She was... Uh, I don't think anybody else has really taken on Blofeld like Tracy did in that film.
2: Yeah, this was the telly Savalas, Blofeld, though. would probably get... force her to be into a, in a music video, perhaps.
1: Now, if you're
0: very, very nice to me, I could make you my encounters.
1: But I'm already a countess.
0: Identify yourself. Whereas if you displease me, I can promise you a very different estate.
2: So on to our next segment, which is the James Bond Film Club. And it's a fun one this week. What do we have, Adam?
3: yeah thanks very much one of your favourites this I know this week we have Flash Gordon uh, the 1980 sci-fi camp classic surprisingly directed by Mike Hodges who'd recently been best known for the gritty British gangster film Get Carter uh, there are bond links everywhere you look in this film Heim Topol Columbo from Fior Eyes Only is in there uh, Max von Sudo Never Say Never Again's Blofeld is the evil Emperor Ming Lorenzo Semple Jr. is uh, writing the screenplay as he did for Never Say Never Again even Valentin Zukovsky himself Robbie Coltrane train plays the crucial role of Manat airstrip. Uh, but of course, Timothy Dalton Bond himself is in here as Prince Baron. The evil emperor Ming of the planet Mongo is destroying the earth with a series of natural disasters but three earthlings land on Mongo, the mad scientist, Dr. Hans Zarkoff, our friend Topol, uh, sort of ditzy travel agent Dale Arden, and none other than Flash Gordon himself, quarterback of the New York Jets. Uh, they all have to survive various adventures. Dr. Zarkoff is, uh, they attempt to brainwash him. Dale is sent to be a concubine of the evil Emperor Ming and Flash is seemingly killed but saved by uh, Emperor Ming's sexpot daughter Aura and begins to lead an uprising against him by uniting uh, Brian Blessed uh, and his warrior Hawks with uh, Timothy Dalton and his merry men. Uh, Timothy Dalton playing a sort of weird Robin Hood kind of figure in this uh, with Richard O'Brien as his right hand man because if you didn't know it was a camp film before Richard O'Brien turned up you definitely know now uh this film's great it's as much a response to star wars as moonraker is uh luke george lucas was inspired by the original flash gordon serials but this is done in such a way that it's already kitsch and camp and tongue-in-cheek and very silly at the time it's a big blast of retro fun lorenzo semple uh, on screenplay we gave a bit of a bashing for never say never again because the tone was all over the place he absolutely nails it here it's the perfect blend of it being completely daft but also quite thrilling as well. There are some great tense set pieces in this, usually involving Dalton, actually, the sort of stick your hand in the trunk and avoid the the poisonous forest monster moment. The production dine and costuming in this is incredible. It's so over the top and colourful, and it seems to be on a massive scale, which defies the budget. And it's also quite kinky as well. The Queen score is amazing. You know, it's full-blown Electrolica. It's exciting and slightly ridiculous all-in-one. The final battle scene is a joyous explosion of the Brian's Blessed and May, with his guitar going absolutely crazy, while Brian Blessed in these big wings just keeps shouting, Hawkman! Dive! <laughs> Sam Jones as Flash Gordon is hilarious. It's a Lazenby-esque one-film wonder. He's far more wooden than Lazenby. Those who think Lazenby's wooden as Bond, wait till you cop a load of Sam Jones as Flash Gordon. Uh, and to talk about Dalton, brilliantly, he's taking this very seriously. It's kind of his first filmic outing as a swashbuckling hero. You know, he does a lot of Bondian running and shooting at the end. And it contrasts brilliantly with the kind of hyperbolic madness that people like Topol and Blessed and Max von Sudo are giving to it. There's only one other thing to say, really. Gordon's
2: alive! Well, yeah, there's not really anywhere to go from there, is there? He summed it up perfectly, Adam Flash Gordon. Certainly in the category of so bad that it's incredibly good uh, for me. And uh, yeah, I think you you mentioned Dalton there. I think it was his moments that really, I mean, I watched this film when I was a lot younger and it was Dalton's moments that stood out for me, actually. The fact that he was taking it so seriously compared to all of the other actors who are having, who seemingly having a lot more fun.
3: And actually, he proves a better foil for everything going on than Sam Jones's Flash Gordon does, who is just this basically block of wood in the middle of all of it. He's quite terrible in a very hilarious way. I wouldn't say this is a so bad, it's good film. I think it knows exactly what it's doing. It knows it's silly and kitsch and ridiculous and over the top. And that's why it's so good, because it fully commits to that
1: it's very much it's kind of one of those cool classics that you just can't help but love it just because it's it's so silly and it's just so ridiculous but it's it is also in its own way it's kind of
2: brilliant i mean Flash does play for the new york jets i'm thinking maybe the monkey from funky monkey should have played played the character instead
3: you just, I mean, everyone remembers Brian Blessed from this as well. It is the most Brian Blessed because he was kind of a, a revered Shakespearean actor, I think, up until this point. This is the moment where he stops being, you know, in the Patrick Stewart, you know, Ian McKellen league of great Shakespeareans, and becomes Campers Christmas Brian Blessed.
0: I know you're only waiting for the right moment to
1: attack him. Yes, and Bing knows that too. So, oh, by delivering you, I allay his suspicions. Ah! Oh. Ming's
0: not unbeatable With all his men he couldn't even kill Flash
1: Gordon's
3: alive
2: And on to our next segment Phil's crazy theories He got lambasted quite rightly In our previous episode What have you got for us this time Phil?
1: Oh you're going to like it this week guys We're going a little bit more left field We're going to look at another henchman From the James Bond era The Probably the most famous Of them all Jaws Now, he did actually only appear in two films, The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, but he had such a big effect on audiences that he's kind of still very much well-loved and well-adored as one of the kind of standout characters from the series, of course, played by the late great Richard Keel. I'd like to think that Jaws is actually not human. I actually think that Jaws is either the world's first cyborg or his kind of the part man, part machine almost, because as we've seen in the films, he is very difficult to overcome and seemingly difficult to kill because the amount of occasions where he's in horrendous incidents, like where he's in car crashes or fires or he gets hit by very hard objects. I have a suggestion that he is probably based on kind of a laboratory experiment that went wrong. There's no way with those metal benches that anybody else could have used them. There's no, you break your jaw using them, but seemingly jaws is able to easily bite people with them or bite through metal work or bite through cables.
3: So, do you think, therefore, the reason he doesn't speak very much is is because if he did speak, you would notice a very thick Austrian accent? Ah, I'm working for Karl Stromberg. I got
1: to kill you, <laughs> Mr. Bond. Got to do it now. Ah. Well, he could have been the inspiration for the Terminator. Let's be honest, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator was a muscle-bound, very tall, um, you know, killing machine. Jaws is a very tall, muscle-bound killing machine. He's not... He's very much, you know, he's, he's not... of anything that anybody's seen before, and he also doesn't really have a
2: backstory. I think we found the crux of your crazy theories, Phil. If a character in Bond doesn't have a backstory, you're going to fill it with as much crap as possible. (laughs) We we don't get the double O's. They don't. Double O's don't have a backstory, so they're all better than Bond. Jaws doesn't have a backstory, so he must be an alien.
1: No, I never said he was an alien. There are elements to him that are human, but I just get the feeling that he's either he's either on steroids or he's on some kind of performance-enhancing drug that means he's, he can go harder and stronger than any other character. So, who's actually
3: made this cyborg in in the Bond universe? Do you, is is this Doctor No? Is this a Doctor No experiment gone wrong, same as Doctor No's metallic hands?
1: Because Stromberg is such a big, you know, industrialist, and he's he's built up this empire. That he he probably because we've often asked before, you know, where the hell do these multibillionaires get their henchmen from? You know, we just Sandor and Jaws just seem to appear one day. There's no real interaction with them. We don't know where they came from. They're just sort of. Yeah, yeah we do. Yeah, s- we do.
3: Yeah, we do. We saw where they get that Hugo Drax rings the hotline in Moonraker. There's a whole scene showing you where they get them from.
1: Yeah, but what's to say that 10 pages isn't actually, you know, I don't know, some sort of facility that's kind of breeding these supervillains or these super henchmen. Okay, we saw in A View to a Kill, there's the mad doctor who manages to effectively create Max Zorin from his weird and wonderful experiments. What's not to say that the henchmen are coming from those same kind of mad-capped experiments that were part of a, you know, a Second World War kind of Nazi experiment that went wrong?
2: I mean, I do agree with you in the sense that it was very difficult to kill the Jaws character, wasn't it, Phil? In those two films, I mean, I guess what would your what scene would you point to as to definitely one that a normal human would not survive?
1: Well, there's several. I mean, you take the the chase with the Lotus in the Spy Who Me, where the Cortina is chasing after Bond and Anya, and it plunges off the edge of a cliff and through somebody's house. Now, that would have killed most human beings stone dead from that height you wouldn't have survived that and yet george just gets out and just brushes himself off so i think this is nonsense
3: fundamentally but i think you've not quoted the one moment of evidence which might have helped your case which is in moonraker when roger moore knees him in the groin and there's a sound effect a comedy sound effect which implies that that is also metal now the idea that there's more metal on him than just the teeth might suggest that more of him is metal than we think and that might go some way towards him being a cyborg. I might have guessed. Do you know him? Not socially. His name's
2: Jaws. He kills people. So uh, (laughs) we'll go on to the the next segment, uh, which is delve deeply. So this week, I thought we could take a look at Japan, which plays quite a prominent role in two Bond films. A slightly older one in You Only Live Twice, and a more recent in Skyfall. Um, so there are a number of places that you can still visit in Japan. Uh, so the first one is uh, the Hotel New Atani, which is uh, you can visit in the center of Tokyo, which is the location of Asato Chemicals, of course, where Bond meets healthy chest enthusiast, Mr. Asato inside, and uh, he meets the world's worst marksman outside, I guess, outside of the the stormtroopers in Star Wars. They are dreadful, dreadful shots. Um, But if you want to visit that hotel, uh, it's $180 US dollars a night in the center of Tokyo so you can uh, visit all of the other interesting areas around there so modern art museum toy museum the high-end shopping district of Roppongi Hills and of course the the Tokyo Tower also of course the the ninja training school of course we see Bond, Eki and Tanaka there and that was actually filmed in Himaji Castle which is around 30 miles away from Kobe. Uh, But you can get there on the bullet train, the Shinkansen from plenty of nearby cities. So if you're a trip to Kyoto, it only takes 45 minutes to travel to that castle. If you want to be a bit more adventurous, of course, you might want to visit the volcano, Blofeld's hidden base. Uh, But that one uh, might take you a little bit longer to get to. That's in uh, Kirishima National Park in uh, the southern island of Japan of Kyushu. And uh, again, you can get there by train, starting from uh, Kagoshima and going to uh, Shinmo-edaki, which I've probably uh, butchered the pronunciation there, uh, but that's where you would get to disembarking from the train. You'd still have a very long hike up the, uh, the volcano, the extinct volcano, and it would probably take you a lot longer than it does Kissy in You Only Live Twice. And in terms of the the more recent film, Skyfall, of course, has Hashima Island, otherwise known as Battleship Island off the coast of Nakasagi, again in southern Japan. And uh, that's depicted, of course, as Raoul Silver's deserted base. Uh, but in real life, the island was owned by the Mitsubishi Company between 1890 and 2002. And it was home to a, a coal mining community of just over 5,000 at its peak in 1959. But by the, the mid-70s, all the coal had gone. And so all the people left too, just leaving the empty buildings that we see today. And uh, actually, the island does have a pretty dark history. It was used as a forced labor camp in World War Two, mainly for Korean prisoners of war. Understandably, there's some controversy about whether it should be a tourist spot. Many would consider it to be uh, dark tourism, Uh, but it is still possible to to visit, uh, not on a solo trip, uh, but you can buy a ticket for a tour boat and uh, in, in years gone by, you could actually set foot on the island, uh, although that was limited to the port area. Obviously, you couldn't go wandering around some crumbling buildings for, for obvious reasons. Uh, but since uh, around 2018, uh, you haven't been allowed to set foot on the island. So do be aware if you book that tour, uh, you will essentially just be going round and round the island on a boat. Uh, so perhaps that one may be not so good to visit, but uh, certainly that the castle uh, would seem like a good option or Asata Chemicals in the centre of Tokyo.
3: Cheers for that, Martin. I have actually been to uh, Himeji Castle. I've had a quick look around that. I was there in Japan on a university uh, trip. I got fat shamed twice in Himeji. There was one incident where we we had a buffet put on by one of the schools we were performing at. And one of the students just walked up to me and said, wow, you eat a lot. And then it happened again in the hotel the next day. I literally had a very frugal breakfast of just some cereal and a piece of fruit. And then one of the serving waitresses came up and said, would you like a donut? And then ran off giggling.
2: Well, I I was going to say, obviously, don't travel to Japan and try and fit in with the locals as Connery does. Uh, But I guess also, Adam, your experience, don't (laughs) expect to be fat shamed if, uh, if you are a bit overweight.
3: Well, I I did actually end up, while I was in Japan, I did end up going to three of the uh, the bathhouses, which you do go in naked, and and they're segregated. But um, in one location, we were taken there by some locals, and one of the guys did sort of let us all know that he'd found a point in the bathhouse wall, the partition wall, where there was a slight hole in it. So he was trying to get us all to have a look in this peephole, uh, which we all obviously declined. Uh, But not all bathhouses are like that, I hasten to add.
2: And certainly not like Tanaka's bathhouse in in the film.
1: Rule number one is never do anything for yourself when someone else can do it for you. And number two? Rule number two, in Japan,
0: men always come first, women come second. I might just retire to here.
2: So it's time for Kill Branch. What questions did we have this week, Phil?
0: Answer my questions quietly but clearly.
1: Yes, yeah, so a couple of coincidences this week. This weekend would have been the hundredth birthday of Sir Ken Adam, the um, iconic production designer who works on many of the Bond films. I wanted to ask you guys, what was your kind of, of all the films that he worked on, what was your kind of favorite set piece or favorite production design that he did of all those films? For me, it's probably his earlier work in, in things like Doctor No or, or maybe even the Spy Who Loved Me. Those sort of amazing um, grand set pieces, the big open open spaces that he did that w- that were so groundbreaking. I
3: think while we're in them, you only live twice mode. I, I would give a huge amount of kudos to the volcano layer of Blofeld. I mean, this is the moment where Bond villain layers become totally extravagant and massive and extraordinary you know the, the fact that he's actually hollowed out a volcano is one thing the fact that he's then got a working space launch program operating out of it is another I think that's his first colossal one it has the same distinctive stylish look as his earlier sets but it really adds the epic to Bond villain layers I think so I'd probably go with that one myself
2: yeah I think I'd agree with you Adam I think the the vastness of that the first time we really get the the villain's layer being huge uh, I guess it was huge in Doctor No I think the Doctor No one is quite iconic as well Uh, but it isn't matched with the extras on set i guess we just get chang wandering around who's who's vital to the operation Uh, but in you only live twice it's certainly the massive scale is matched by the the number of people who bond has to uh, fight against
1: joe got in touch with us to ask the team what are the films that we've kind of been watching to lift our spirits in lockdown so not necessarily bomb based but have you guys been watching a lot of films since we all went into the the dreaded lockdown, or is it just sort of mixing it up with kind of books and television?
3: Me and my fiance rewatched all the Harry Potter films. Actually, we've we've been having a sort of Sunday Harry Potter club. They're they're interesting, actually. I'm I'm still not the biggest fan of them, uh, but they are actually a bit better looking at back at them than than I remember them being at the time, and particularly some of the later ones, which I didn't have much time for when they came out um, you realise actually they are better adaptations of quite flawed novels I'd say than, than you gave them credit for uh, th- there are some moments which haven't aged very well I mean Daniel Radha's acting in that third one is, is pretty appalling he was their
1: friend strangely though actually myself and my fiance we are also doing our own uh, kind of film club on a weekend to, to get through kind of uh, series and we actually also watched the the Harry Potter films we, we got into that to, to sort of immerse me in in the kind of harry potter universe and i did really enjoy them actually considering you know how long they came out i think they've aged quite well
2: yeah on the book theme i've tried to to keep it with bond i've uh, i've just started roger moore's autobiography my word is my bond which uh, sadly i hadn't read before but uh, so i'll let you know how that one goes
3: i'll tell you another awful daniel Radcliffe bit in harry potter it's at the end of the fourth one when uh, hermione goes nothing's going to be the same now is it he just goes
1: no there are a few problematic moments with with the acting. I, I think there are some wooden moments, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll gloss over those. Of
3: course, Alan Rickman's amazing throughout, isn't he? I mean, I mean, who else could ever have played that part, Mister Potter, our
1: new celebrity. Okay, so our final question this week came from Better Make That 2 on Twitter, who we would say was the best recurring Bond director of all the films. I guess for me, it's probably Martin Campbell.
2: Yeah, Martin Campbell for me as well, Phil, managed to reinvent the Bond character for two different generations. I don't think there's any competition, really, unless Adam can think of one.
3: Uh, in terms of recurring director, no, probably not. I think I think just because he did those two films across very different eras with very different bonds and um, established them in the role and what they were going to do with it pretty much straight away. I, I do give um, John Glenn quite a lot of credit, actually, because, again, he's the other recurring director who sort of has to span two different styles and tones of bond film the late roger moore and the timothy dalton so i think he does deserve a lot of credit for that
1: okay thanks guys so that was this week's q branch so by all means keep in touch with us on our social media channels please do keep sending in your questions suggestions and theories and we will try to fit as many of them in to our q branch and shout out segments
2: So we reached the final segment and it's back over to you, Phil, for the quiz. Have you read your quiz book cover to cover? Are you, me and Adam, not prepared, I'm sure, for what's about to come?
1: No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! This week I thought we'd do a um, quiz based on the taglines from James Bond posters and advertisements. So there's four questions each. Adam, you're going to go first. Question one, he never misses his target, and now his target is 007.
3: Okay, that must surely be the man with the golden gun.
1: Correct, it's the man with the golden gun. So, Martin, your first question, the man, the number, the licence are all back.
2: Um, (laughs) Based on the word licence, I'll go licence to kill.
1: Not quite. I'm afraid it was Tomorrow Never Dies. I believe that was um, an international poster, so a little bit trickier on that one. How on earth was he
3: ever meant to get Tomorrow Never Dies from that?
1: I'm, I'm just saying that was the tagline they used. I'm, I wasn't part of the marketing team that came up with that.
2: Not part of the marketing team, Phil, but part of the quiz master who came up with these questions.
1: <laughs> so, Adam, question two. Have regrets gets revenge. Have regrets get yep.
3: revenge Yep. is that license to kill
1: no it's actually quantum of solace from 2008 okay Again, no, the, mar, no mar, marginally here. more
3: gettable <laughs> there's a good guess
2: i would have gone there
1: no so it's understandable why you go that way so martin your second question james bond's all-time high
2: octopussy
1: correct so you're now level with adam so moving on to question number three for adam sinister adversary deadly beauty <laughs> what sinister <laughs> adversary
3: deadly beauty
1: I'll give you a clue if it'd help
3: yeah go on give us a clue
1: 80s bomb film
2: well that's not where i would have gone i was, well, guessing get, no, I, was <laughs> I was
3: i was looking at spy who loved me but okay uh let's go then for let's go for your eyes only
1: Oh close, it was actually a view to a kill. So Martin, question number three. So the world's masters of murder pull out all the stops to destroy Agent 007. 1960s bomb film.
2: Well, guess on Her Majesty's.
1: It's actually from Russia with Love. So Adam, your final question. Everyone has a past, every legend has a beginning.
3: I okay, I think this is Casino Royale.
1: It is correct. It was Casino Royale. So, Martin, for question four, you've got to get this one to stay in the game. When the world is the target and the threat is real, you can still depend on one man. So, 1990s Bond, and considering we've already had Tomorrow Never Dies.
2: 50 50, I'm sure I'll get it wrong. Let's go, the world is not enough.
1: <laughs> oh, and you've got it wrong. It was actually golden eye. It was strong golden eye. So with that, Adam is this week's winner with a close score of two to one.
3: Yeah, and, and I believe, Should we introduce the Cubby Cup? We have, dec- we have now decided that we're actually going to play these quizzes for for an actual point. We're going to play for the Cubby Cup. So whoever wins the most quizzes at the end of this series will be the winner of the Cubby Cup. So Phil now stands on two wins. I've just notched up my first. Martin, though, still plenty of time to come back.
2: So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you very much for joining and listening with us. Do keep up to date with our social media accounts as well in the meantime before our next episode. But uh, that's it for this week. I was Martin.
3: I was Adam. And
1: I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night.
3: I think there's a missed opportunity when he helps uh, Bond and Goodhead escape the space station in Moonraker. He should have just yelled to them, Quick, run,
2: get to the shuttle!